night in the swamp. Reflected sunlight gleams off the face of the full moon, illuminating the still stagnant waters. The soothing sound of crickets and frogs and birds carry on the soft, warm wind, but there is also tension in the air this eve, a quiet frenzy which draws to it the macabre man-thing. Welcome everyone to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm your rather inconsistent host and guide through the weird and wacky, the often wonderful of 70s swamp-based monster comics. Today I'll be covering Adventure into Fear number 16, Cry of the Native. And I'll also talk briefly about 1970s environmentalism, but first... Well, at this point in the show, I usually start by giving some related news about Man-Thing or simply begging for feedback, but... As it turns out, related news about Man-Thing is kind of few and far between. Hopefully, that will change when the R.L. Stein books start coming out, but till then, yeah, not much going on. And as for the begging, I grow weary of it. Not to say that it hasn't worked. Many people have sent me some truly wonderful emails and tweets and whatnots. I've said some really great and frankly humblingly nice words. I, I can't express what that means. Just the fact that there are people out there listening is fantastic, and to know that you actually dig what I'm doing, well, well, thanks. I appreciate it. And yes, humblingly is a word. I just made it up. That being said, I've decided in lieu of news or begging, uh, I'd like to do it this time. I'll talk briefly about other things I'm reading that are tangentially related to this podcast. For instance, today I'm going to talk about Monsters Unleashed. Now, at the time I'm recording this, the first issue of Monsters Unleashed has come out, and it's fine. It's drawn well, and it sure does cram as many locations and characters as possible into a rather threadbare concept. So, let's see. There's a kid, and he draws monsters, and they come to life, and they fight teams of heroes because nefarious reasons undisclosed at this time. If it sounds like I'm a little underwhelmed, well, I am. Maybe I'm just burnt on crossovers. No, I'm definitely burnt on crossovers. I mean, how many are we getting a year now? Two? Three? Four? There used to be a time when crossovers were massive events that stories built to and had consequences. Characters had arcs and they changed, not just for the story, but forever. And they were rare, once every few years, like leap years, or good DC movies. You know, something that only occasionally happens. <laughs> now, crossovers are, to me, I want to reiterate, this is, this is my opinion, uh, I'm not stating a fact here, but crossovers to me are just nuisances. Uh, they only serve to get in the way of whatever storyline you're following at the time in order to tell a story that no one really gives a shit about anyway. Seriously, I mean, does anyone care what's happening in Civil War II? I'd really like to know because, again, for me, it just gets in the way, and the only purpose it serves is to make Captain Marvel an unlikable character, something I didn't think was possible. So yeah, Monsters Unleashed. It's fine. To be fair, there's only one issue out, and maybe it'll turn into something special, a classic to be revered and studied throughout the ages. Or maybe it'll be a quick cash grab for Marvel, and it'll only be intrusive for a while, and then it'll go away and be quickly forgotten. 
And if that sounds cynical, it is. Because it can only be a cash grab if people are actually buying it. I'm actually buying this comic, so I am part of the problem. I'm actually enabling the very thing I'm ranting about, ensuring that it will continue in the future. Man, being entertained is hard work. By the way, in case you're wondering, this rant brought to you by Rantex, the daily dietary supplement for old men who shake their fists at clouds. Okay, rant over. But let me know what you think. Uh, are you reading Monsters Unleashed? And what do you think of crossovers? Am I completely off base here? Uh, send me an email to nexus at daddyelk.com or hit me up at Twitter at Nexus of All. All right, quick break. I'm going to play a trailer, and then when I come back, 70s environmentalism. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarter Bin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Tree huggers, peace nicks. Damn long-haired hippie types that care more about spotted owls and salmon than people and jobs. I came from a very conservative family, and this is the sort of thing you'd hear whenever the subject of the environment came up. Well, it was Philadelphia, so there'd be a lot more cursing and people saying, yo, but you get the idea. At the time, environmentalism was basically the fight against pollution. I grew up at a time when... McDonald's served everything in styrofoam containers, and it was perfectly acceptable to throw your trash out your car window. Seriously, people did that all the time and thought nothing of it. When I was in elementary school, we would have assemblies where teachers and authority figures like police officers and firemen would give hour-long presentations on the benefits of putting your crap in a trash can. Yeah, we had to be told that. It got to the point where there were PSAs on TV pleading with you not to jump trash on the side of the road or else you could make an Indian cry. Yeah, Google it. It seems strange now, but there was a mindset at that time that it was perfectly okay just to fling your shit anywhere because, we assumed, someone else would pick it up for you. Basically, we were awful. And this was just on a personal, individual level. Corporations and factories? Well, that level of pollution was off the scale. Cars still used leaded gasoline and spewed toxins into the air. The amount of waste poured into waterways caused rivers to catch fire. Not making that up, rivers caught fire. And on and on and on, we were poisoning ourselves as we littered haphazardly. But things were changing. Public awareness was slowly coming to the realization that things needed to change. Books like... Rachel Carson's Silent Spring were crucial to raising awareness to the dangers facing the environment. In 1970, there was the first Earth Day, and the Environmental Protection Agency was created. The EPA was created by, hang on, let me, let me look that up. I'm Googling it now. It was Richard Nixon? Huh. Well, I'll be damned. 
Oh, the 70s. When up was down and down was up. So stronger regulations went into place. Restrictions on dumping, food safety, clean air initiatives, and a host of other reforms, including putting land aside for conservation. And people started using trash cans. Recycling, that was still a decade away, but, you know, baby steps. There was a downside to these reforms, however. The transition and implementation of these new requirements were expensive, and in some cases, smaller businesses were forced to cut costs. This resulted in downsizing and a loss of jobs. Now, the extent of this wasn't nearly what was predicted or reported. It actually had a very small impact, but some workers were hurt, and this is a legitimate concern. But as it happens in cases like this, the businesses, the government, the unions, etc., all sat down and calmly and collectively worked together to come up with a solution that was mutually beneficial to all parties involved. (laughs) No, of course that's not what happened. No, what really happened is that everyone got angry, made wild accusations, and threw around ridiculous statistics and basically made a delicate situation worse because change is hard and greed is easy. And arguments like this would tend to devolve into a single, simple dividing line. Progress versus conservation. Conservationists wanted to put land aside, spaces and areas to remain untouched and unspoiled, thus protecting the land from pollution and allowing the wildlife in the area to thrive. Corporations wanted to develop areas for profit, yes, but with the idea that jobs would be created and new modern living spaces for a growing population could be created, with the idea that environmental protections would be firmly in place. Both of these ideas were valid. And more often than not, the progress side would win. And those promises about environmental protections? Well, let's just say corners were cut. This caused more anger. This sparked more arguments. And while corporations and government agencies argued in the abstract about long-term cost and implementation, ordinary people suffered. And at times, ordinary people fought back. These ideas, not surprisingly, were tackled in a Man-Thing comic with all the subtlety that Steve Gerber could manage. Adventure into Fear number 16, Cry of the Native. Cover dated September 1973, released on or about June 1973. Steve Gerber, writer. Thal Mayeric, artist. Sal Trapiani, inker. Artie Simak, letterer. P. Goldberg, colorist. Roy Thomas, editor. Cover art by Frank Bruner. Deep in the swamp, Man-Thing is drawn to a Native American village, where he overhears the tribal chieftain and his son Black Eagle discuss expositional plot points. Apparently a construction company wants to drain the swamp and build an airport. Black Eagle does not want this to happen, so along with some other members of this tribe, they plan some creative sabotage in full tribal dress. At the construction site, the construction workers sit around, fully armed and being racist. Black Eagle and his saboteurs successfully blow up some equipment with Molotov cocktails. But Black Eagle is shot while escaping. Man-Thing, who's been watching all of this from a distance, rescues Black Eagle and takes him to a nearby farmhouse for help, proving yet again this is the most convenient swamp ever. The next day, the owner of the construction company, F.A. Schist, think about it, 
looks over the damage and vows that he will complete his project. Nothing will stop him. Nothing! <laughs> and like all villains, he does exactly what you'd expect. He goes to a judge and gets a court order. Meanwhile in town, a protest rally against a construction company is going on, attended by the Kale family, just to let you know they're still here. When suddenly, an impromptu audition for the fifth member of the village people breaks out as a group of shirtless construction workers in hard hats take the stage. After a brief exchange of cliches, a fight breaks out and hilarity ensues. Not intentional hilarity, mind you, but it is hilarious. Finally, F.A. Schist, think about it, shows up with a court order in hand, banning all further demonstrations, and with the power to evict all Indians from their land. He calls it the Patriot Act. Not really. The next day, F.A. Schist, think about it, and three police officers go to evict the tribe from their land, but they are met by a group of men in full tribal costume set out to defend their village. F.A. Schist is outraged and racist. Meanwhile, Man-Thing decides to halt construction himself and is promptly run over by a bulldozer. Undeterred by being crushed, Man-Thing rises from the earth and burns one of the more sadistic workers, fusing his fingertips to his forehead. The man is then crushed by the same bulldozer he accidentally kept running. The other workers run off in fear, and Man-Thing, as always, walks away sadly. But the story has not ended. Tomorrow the work will begin anew. Men have sentenced this Fen to death, and with it, Man-Thing. They will likely carry out that sentence. Eventually, they always do. So that's how it ends. Everything is just left hanging, and it will not be resolved for several issues. But let's start with the first thing we learn in this issue. There is a Native American tribe living in the swamp. Who knew? This, this swamp continues to be the Man-Thing version of the Room of Requirement. Remember, there's also a doctor's office, various farms, a secret lab, and a military base. So I guess a Native American village isn't that much of a stretch, if you think about it. Now, I admit, when I first looked over the art for this issue, I thought, ah, oh, crap, they're really going to do Indians in full native garb? You know, as if that's just how they dress all the time. But the text does go to some length to point out that they only dress this way in order to do some sabotage raids. It's uh, like a modern version of the Boston Tea Party. It's not PC or anything, but at least it's not straight-up racist. And speaking of straight-up racist, the construction workers are a bit over the top. Blasted redskin savages! That's a, that's a thing that they say. And the word savage actually gets used quite a bit. Uh, also, they bemoan the engines with Molotov cocktails. But you know, if you're starting a Native American punk band, you can, can't go wrong with the name engines with Molotov cocktails. But yeah, the construction workers are portrayed as brutish and sadistic. Uh, there's no real dilemma on who Gerber thinks are the bad guys here. Uh, culminating in the head of the business, Mr. F.A. Schist. F.A. Schist. Fascist. That's right, the head of the corporation is fascist. Okay, Steve Gerber is many things. Subtle is not one. 
We get a brief glimpse of the Kales, just letting you know they're still around. We'll get back to them in just a couple issues, kids. Stay tuned. Uh, Jennifer and Andy don't do anything. Unusual for Jennifer, par for the course for Andy, uh, and Joshua gets to have a couple of panels of being cryptic. You know, stay tuned. Then comes the rally slash protest. Okay, let me just read this dialogue from the construction worker who takes the stage. You folks have been sounding off about the birds and the snakes and their ecology. What about my ecology? I don't work, my kids don't eat. That's the simplest ecology there is, right? Heck, we ain't villains. We're just hard-working guys trying to earn a dollar. Now, that sounds fine on its own. A bit heavy-handed, maybe, but it gets the point across. The other side's opinion being expressed. It's fine. Except for the accompanying visual. Wow. See, it's a shirtless man in a hard hat with a bright white bushy mustache. Really hard to take him seriously. I, I joked about it in the synopsis, but it does look like a village, a member of the village people jumped on stage. And if you took those the speech balloons away, <laughs> it's a conflicting message is what I'm saying. <laughs> and then comes the fight, the brawl. There, it's a glorious thing. There is a three-quarter page image of shirtless men fighting. Uh, most wearing hard hats because, you know, if you're a construction worker, you're required to wear your hard hat at all times, even when not working. And the dialogue is just peppered with these PG insults. Uh, blasted radical berserkos. Man, that's gotta hurt. And you crummy hard hat, I bet your brain is hard too. Damn, get some aloe vera for that burn. <laughs> but then Schitt's comes in with his court order and to break everything up, and that's a bit anticlimactic. But I kind of like it. I mean, he's a ruthless businessman, and of course he's going to use lawyers in the courts to legitimize his treachery. I think more supervillains could benefit from legal machinations. They should give it a try. I suppose it doesn't make for a very enjoyable read, but, you know, more realistic, I suppose. And the brief standoff with the police and the tribe is fairly pointless, nothing really happens. Although we do get schist, fascist, being superior, saying they think they can stop me with bows and arrows. But he's with a cop, and who knows that the costumes and the arrows are for show, and he says the threat's real, even if the rest is just a display. This serves to make schist seem more out of touch and more arrogant, not really needed. I mean, I think giving the man the name fascist is enough for us to figure out the character. You know, still. And finally, the climactic battle between Man-Thing and the workers. Now, I get the fact that the Man-Thing is a giant muck monster who would probably scare the crap out of anyone, but the construction workers are just, I don't know, too much. Like I said before, they're just, they're just brutal and sadistic. And they take great pleasure in just trying to inflict pain on him. They beat him with axes and picks. They crush him with a bulldozer. They try to burn him with torches. Why do they have torches? Not exactly sure. It's the middle of the day in modern times, but perhaps it's a requirement of construction sites in the 1970s. I know, along with wearing your hard hat at all times. I do like the notion that Gerber continues with the swamp and the man-thing being connected. And that he somehow knows that even if he can't articulate it. That's why he tries to stop the construction. It injures the swamp, therefore it injures him. He actually has a real motivation for him to want to stop this construction and to defend himself and the swamp. 
Now, this this whole thing, the whole story culminates in the worker, Jake Simpson. We know his name is Jake Simpson because it's mentioned five times in two pages. Uh, Jake Simpson gets killed, and first he gets his fingers fused to his head by Man-Thing's touch. Pretty brutal. And then he's run over by the same uh, bulldozer that he used to run over Man-Thing. Accidentally, of course, the story goes to great pains to show that Man-Thing didn't kill him, which is odd because it has no qualms about melting flesh and bone to his skull, but hey, maybe it's a Batman thing, you know, I won't kill you, but I won't stop you from dying sort of thing, you know, semantics in my mind, but whatever. And then it's just over. Many, many, many loose threads here. What happened to Black Eagle? Will the tribe be removed from the land? Will anyone figure out that that guy's name is fascist and you probably shouldn't trust him? These are all things that we need to know. Sadly, this story won't be picked up again for quite a bit. For a while, actually, and not in a satisfactory manner, either. But wait, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. As for this story, well, it's a bit disjointed. Again, Gerber is throwing so much at the wall here. Native American rights, ecology, pollution, workers' rights, and more. Uh, It all just seems kind of rushed. Not enough time to really get the importance of each subject, and most significantly, not enough time for Gerber to satirize each one. And really, that's why we're here. I'll be back right after this. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Matthew Carr, and I'd like to introduce you to a brand new podcast all about the craft and the process of writing. It's called Word After Word, and each month I'll be joined by Professor David Hicks to discuss the skills and methods needed to be a great writer. Using examples from novels, short stories, and poetry, as well as TV and film, we'll dissect passages, beautiful scenes, and characters, and investigate the process writers have employed in order to create their great work. Along the way, we'll be joined by special guests, best-selling authors, poets, as well as up-and-coming writers to get their advice and learn the habits that make them successful at what they do. So join us, Paul Matthew Carr and David Hicks, for Word After Word, a podcast on writing. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can also find us online at wordafterwordpodcast.com. All right, yet another episode in the books. Next week is Adventure into Fear number 17, It Came Out of the Sky. And if you like satire, this is a good one. What if Superman were a giant man-baby with all his power and the intellect of a child? That's right. It's the arrival of Wondar, the sky being. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So, that just leaves me to say, you've been listening to The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elk production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. If you'd like to contact the show, and I think that you should, you can email the program at nexus at daddyelk.com, or contact us on Twitter at Nexus of All. Or visit the show online at nexusofallrealities.com, where comments can be left on individual episodes. The Nexus of All Realities can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And please head on over and leave us a review. I'll be your best friend if you do. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Bye.